Chapter Twenty Five of Love Affairs of the Courts of Europe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jason in Panama. Love Affairs of the Courts of Europe by Thornton Hall. Chapter Twenty Five: The Rival Sisters. It was an unkind fate that linked the lives of the fifteenth Louis of France and Marie Lezinska, Princess of Lorraine, and daughter of Stanislas, the dethroned King of Poland, for there was probably no princess in Europe less equipped by nature to hold the fickle allegiance of the young French king, and no royal husband less likely to bring happiness into the life of such a consort. When Princess Marie was called to the throne of France, she found herself transported from one of the most penurious and obscure to the most splendid of the courts of Europe, frightened and overwhelmed, as de Goncourt tells us, by the grandeur of the king, bringing to her husband nothing but obedience, to marriage only duty, trembling and faltering in her queenly role like some escaped nun lost in Versailles. Although by no means devoid of good looks, as Natia's portrait of her at this time proves, her attractions were shy ones, as her virtues were modest, almost ashamed. She shrank alike from the embraces of her husband and the gaieties of his court, finding her chief pleasure in music and painting, in long talks with the most serious-minded of her ladies, in masses and prayers, spending gloomy hours with her oratory with its death's head, which she always carried with her on her journeys. Such was the nun-like wife whom Louis XV led to the altar shortly after he had entered his sixteenth year, and had already had his initiation into that career of vice which he pursued with few intervals to the end of his life. Already at fifteen, the king, who has been mockingly dubbed Le Bien-Aimé, was breaking away from the austere hands of his boyhood's mentor, Cardinal Fleury, and was beginning to snatch a few fearful joys in the company of his minions, such as the Duc de la Tremouille and the Duc de Gèvre, and a few gay women of whom the sprightly and beautiful Princesse de la Charolais was the ringleader. But he was still nothing more than a big and gloomy child, whose ill-balanced nature gravitated between fits of profound gloom and the wild abandonment of debauch, one hour, torn and shaken by religious terrors, fears of hell and of death, the next, the very soul of hysterical gaiety, with words of blasphemy on his lips, the gayest member of a band of bacchanals in some midnight orgy. To such a youth, feverishly seeking distraction from his own black moods, the demure, devout princess, ignorant of the caresses and coquetry of her sex, moving like a spectre among the brilliant light-hearted ladies of his court was the most unsuitable the most impossible of brides he quickly wearied of her company and fled from her sighs and her homilies to seek forgetfulness of her and of himself in the society of such sirens of the court as mademoiselle de beaujolais madame de lauraguet and mademoiselle de charolais whose coquetries and high spirits never failed to charm away his gloomy humours. But although one lady after another, from the most bewitching of madcaps, 
Mademoiselle de Chaulet, to the dark-eyed buxom Comtesse de Toulouse, practiced on him all their allurements, strove to awake his senses by a thousand coquetries, a thousand assaults, the king's timidity eluded these advances, which amused and alarmed, but did not tempt his heart. That young monarch's heart was still so full of the aged Fleury's terrifying tales of the woman of the regency. Such coyness, however, was not long to stand in the way of the king's appetite for pleasure, which every day strengthened. One day it began to be whispered that at last Louis had been vanquished, that, at a supper at Le Muette, he had proposed the health of an unknown fair, which had been drunk with acclamation by his boon companions, and the court was full of excited speculation as to who his mysterious charmer would be. That some new and powerful influence had come into the young sovereign's life was abundantly clear. From the new light that shone in his eyes, the laughter that was now always on his lips, he had said good-bye to melancholy. He astonished all by his new vivacity, and became the leader in one dissipation after another, whose noisy merriment he led and prolonged far into the night. It was not long before the identity of the worker of this miracle was revealed to the world. She had been recognized more than once when making her stealthy way to the king's apartments. She was his chosen companion on his journey to Compagne, and it was soon public knowledge that Madame de Maille was the woman who had captured the king's elusive heart. And indeed there was little occasion for surprise, for Madame de Maille, although she would never see her thirtieth birthday again, was one of the most seductive women in all of France. Black-eyed, crimson-lipped, oval-faced, Madame de Maille was one of those women who, with cheeks on fire and blood astir, eyes large and lustrous as the eyes of Juno, with bold carriage and in free toilettes, step forward out of the past with the proud and insolent graces of the divinities of some bacchanalia with the provocative and sensual charm which is so powerful in its appeal she had a rare skill in displaying her beauty to its fullest advantage her cult of the toilette the duc de lune tells us went with her even by night she never went to bed without decking herself with all her diamonds and her most seductive hour was in the morning when in her bed with her glorious dishevelled hair veiling her pillow a glitter with her jewels she gave audience to her friends such was the ravishing ardent passionate woman who was the first of many to carry louis's heart by storm and to be established in his palace as his mistress to inaugurate for him a new life of pleasure and to estrange him still more from his unhappy queen shut up with her prayers and her tears in her own room with her tapestry, her books of history, and her music for soul relaxation. The most innocent pleasures, Queen Marie wrote sadly at this time, are not for me. Under Madame de Maille's rule, the court of Versailles awoke to a new life. The little apartments grow animated, gay to the point of license. Noise, merriment, and even gayer and livelier clash of glasses matter nights fete succeeded fete in brilliant sequence each night saw its royal debauch with the king and his mistress for arch spirits of the revels there were nightly banquets with the rarest wines and the most costly viands supplemented by salads prepared by the dainty hands of 
Mademoiselle de Charolais, and ragouts cooked by Louis himself in silver saucepans, and these were followed by orgies which left the celebrants in the last excesses of intoxication to be gathered up at break of day and carried helpless to bed. Such wild excesses could not fail sooner or later to bring satiety to a lover so unstable as Louis, and it was not long before he grew a little weary of his mistress, who, too assured of her conquest, began to exhibit sudden whims and caprices, and fits of obstinacy. Her jealous eyes followed him everywhere. Her reproaches, if he so much as smiled on a rival beauty, provoked daily quarrels. He was drawn, much against his will, into her family disputes, and into the disgraceful affairs of her father, the dissolute Marquis de Nesle. Meanwhile, Madame de Maillie's supremacy was being threatened in a most unexpected quarter. Among the pupils of the convent school at Port Royal was a young girl, in whose ambitious brain the project was forming of supplanting the king's favourite, and of ruling France and Louis at the same time. The idle dream of a schoolgirl, of course, but to Félicité de Nesle it was no vain dream, but the ambition of a lifetime which dominated her more and more as the months passed in her convent seclusion. If her sister, Madame de Mailly, had so easily made a conquest of the king, why should she, with less beauty, it is true, but with a much cleverer brain, despair? And thus it was that every letter Madame received from her little sister pleaded for an invitation to court, until at last Mademoiselle de Nesle found herself the guest of Louis' mistress in his palace. Thus the first important step was taken. The rest would be easy, for Mademoiselle never doubted for a moment her ability to carry out her program to its splendid climax. It was certainly a bold, almost impudent design, for the girl of the convent had few attractions to appeal to a monarch so surrounded by beauty as the King of France. What the courtiers saw, says the Duc de Richelieu, was a long neck clumsily set on the shoulders, a masculine figure and carriage, features not unlike those of Madame de Mailly, but thinner and harder, which exhibited none of her flashes of kindness, her tenderness of passion. Even her manners seemed calculated to repel rather than attract the man she meant to conquer, for she treated him from the first with a familiarity amounting almost to rudeness, and a willfulness to which he was by no means accustomed. There was, at any rate, something novel and piquant in an attitude so different from that of all other court ladies. Resentment was soon replaced by interest, and interest by attraction, until Louis, before he was aware of it, began to find the society of the impish, mocking, defiant maid from the convent more to his taste than that of the most fascinating women of his court. The more he saw of her, the more effectually he became under her spell. Each day found her in some new and tantalizing mood, and as she drew him more and more into her toils, she kept him there by her ingenuity in devising novel pleasures and entertainments for him, until, within a month of setting eyes on her, he was telling Madame de Mailly he loved her sister more than herself. One of the first evidences of his favor was to provide her with a husband in the Comte de Vintimille and a dower of two hundred thousand livres. 
he promised her a post as lady-in-waiting to madame de dauphine and gave her a sumptuous suite of rooms at versailles he even conferred on her husband the honour of handing him his shirt on the wedding night an evidence of high favour such as no other bridegroom had enjoyed it was thus little surprise to any one to find the comtesse bride not only her sister's most formidable rival but actually usurping her place and privileges nor was it long before this place on which she had set her heart first within the walls of the port royal convent was unassailably hers and madame de mailly in tears and sadness saw an unbridgeable gulf widen between her and the man she undoubtedly had grown to love that felicite de nesle had not overestimated her powers of conquest was soon apparent louis became her abject slave humouring her caprices and submitting to her will and this will let it be said to her credit she exercised largely for his good she weaned him from his vicious ways she stimulated whatever good remained in him she tried and in a measure succeeded in making a man of him under her influence he began to realize that he was a king and to play his exalted part more worthily he asserted himself in a variety of directions from looking personally after the ordering of his household to taking the reins of state into his own hands nor did she curtail his pleasures she merely gave them a saner direction orgies and midnight revelry became things of the past but their place was taken by delightful days spent at the chateau of choisy that regal little pleasure-house between the waters of the seine and the forests of senart with all its marvels of costly and artistic furnishing here one entertainment succeeded another from the hunting which opened to the card-games which closed the day a time of innocent delights which came sweet to the jaded palate of the king thus the halcyon months passed until one august day in seventeen forty one the comtesse was seized with a slight fever louis consumed by anxiety spending the anxious hours by her bedside or pacing the corridor outside two days later he was stooping to kiss an infant presented to him on a cushion of cramoisie velvet his happiness was crowned at last and life spread before him a prospect of many such years but tragedy was already brooding over this scene of pleasure although none least of all the king seemed to see the shadow of her wings one early day in december madame de vintimille was seized with a severe illness as sudden as it was mysterious physicians were hastily summoned from paris only to louis's despair to declare that they could do nothing to save the life of the comtesse tortured by excruciating pain says the goncourt struggling against a death which was full of terror and which seemed to point to the violence of poison the dying woman sent for a confessor she died almost instantly in his arms before the sacraments could be administered and as the confessor charged with the dead woman's last penitent message to her sister entered madame de mailly's salon he dropped dead here indeed was tragedy in its most sudden and terrible form the king was stunned incredulous he refused to believe that the woman he had so lately clasped in his arms so warm 
so full of life, was dead. And when at last the truth broke on him with crushing force, he was as a man distraught. He shut himself up in his room and listened half dead to a mass from his bed. He would not allow any but the priest to come near him. He repulsed all efforts at consolation. And whilst Louis was thus alone with his demented grief, thrust away in a stable of the palace, lay the body of the dead woman, which had been kept for a cast to be taken, that distorted countenance, that mouth which had breathed out its soul in a convulsion, so that the efforts of two men were required to close it for moulding, the already decomposing remains of Madame de Vintemille served as a plaything and a laughing-stock to the children and lackeys. When the storm of his grief at last began to abate, the king retired to his remote country seat of St. Leger, carrying his broken heart with him, and also Madame de Mailly, as sharer of his sorrow, for it was to the woman whom he had so lightly discarded that he first turned for solace. At St. Leger he passed his days in reading and re-reading the two thousand letters the dead Comtesse had written to him, sprinkling their perfumed pages with his tears and when he was not thus burying himself in the past he was a prey to the terrors that had obsessed his childhood the fear of death and of hell at supper the only meal which he shared with others he refused to touch meat in order that he might not commit sin on every side if a light word was spoken he would rebuke the speaker by talk of death and judgment and if his eyes met those of madame de Mailly, he burst into tears and was led sobbing from the room. The communion of grief gradually awoke in him his old affection for Madame de Mailly, and for a time it seemed not unlikely that she might regain her lost supremacy. But the discarded mistress had many enemies at court, who were by no means willing to see her re-established in favour. The chief of them, the Duc de Richelieu, the handsomest man and the hero of more scandalous amours than any other in france a man moreover of crafty brain who had already acquired an ascendancy over the king's mind with madame de tencin a woman as scheming and with as evil a reputation as himself for chief ally the duke determined to find another mistress who should finally oust madame de Mailly from louis's favour and her he found in a woman, devoted to himself and his interests, and of such surpassing loveliness that, when the king first saw her at Petite Bourg, he exclaimed, Heavens, how beautiful she is! Such was the involuntary tribute Louis paid at first sight to the charms of Madame de la Tournelle, who was now fated to take the place of her dead sister, Madame de Vintimille, just as the Comtesse had supplanted another sister, Madame de Mailly. End of chapter 25